you'll find that this is not something we are roaring about. Oh, brother, this guy stinks! Do dinosaurs roar? We don't actually know. Like, I was talking with a coworker the other day. We don't know how dinosaurs sounded. They could easily just talk like, hi. <laughs> we wouldn't know. It could have been falsettos. Okay. everyone and welcome to block devices episode 29 i think this is yes this is 29 i I think we're just doing what we can the thing that is keeping me awake is my pure excitement for my co-host who was his birthday this past week and we're celebrating here noah guzman is here joining me noah how are you today i am having an excellent time in this in this throne of a 24 year old you know i got some baby yoda behind me baby yoda grogu on my shirt a blow-up lightsaber that i got at a birthday party last night you know a pretty eventful week it has been for the past two just regarding releases and regarding all the stuff to focus on on our tvs and screens so uh plenty to talk about happy pride month to all we're back in these chairs baby and i'm it's another episode it's time for it you act like we have lives outside of these chairs. That's impossible. Hey, um, plenty of life, dude. But I, actually, I wanted to share this. Uh, yep. Recently, I was like, what are my goals for this 24th year? Like, what will I be doing? Um, but something I feel really strongly about is just maintaining this part in my life is like, you know, meeting up with you, Brandon, and being able to talk about one of my favorite things ever, which is, you know, all the world of entertainment, whether it's movies, it's TVs, it's the stuff that pops up for those, um, the news regarding, uh, new productions. And, uh, I'm just, I'm so involved in that world that I really want to keep that as a, a main focus of this next year. So I want you to know that I really value this. I feel honored that you have stuck with me this far and that thank you for all of your <laughs> and We're going further <laughs> and we're hopefully going further and into our trailer roundup, which we started last week in terms of just getting the sheer number of things out there. Noah, uh, why, why are we doing this? Okay, so you may have remembered a long time fans, whoever's been sticking around for our early episodes. Woo! Did we talk about it being a very busy year? We talked about major movies, whether it was Marvel, um, insert other movies that are very popular. <laughs> um, there's Marvel and out- there's other. <laughs> Right. If we came out, we've seen it. It's what's uh, provided us so much content to talk about here on this podcast. But damn, every week, do we underestimate like the flood of trailers that hits us? So, um, so many come to our screens week after week that we really got to chalk it down because sometimes we look at these trailers and we're like, do they hold the same weight as our other news topics? I don't know, but I kind of still want to talk about them. So, uh, this week we are uh, looking at another bulk of trailers that dropped. Uh, we could list them all, but I'm sure if you got social media and you're searching up some new movie news, you'll see those, uh, very uh, exciting new trailers. We are going to speak to the ones that capture our interest and that we kind of have particular notes for. So uh, here's a little trailer rodeo roundup opening segment for you. Uh, for myself, I'm going to be opening up the discussion for Nope, Jordan Peele's new uh, Monkey Paw production film has released a final trailer and it has answered, I think, plenty of questions that fans have had from the initial trailer that we've seen, which gave <laughs> little to no, I'm just going to say it, no, less than like a detailed um exposition for our story we got great introductions to our characters in kiki palmer we finally got a full trailer that is uh just sharing a little bit more of what jordan peele has hiding it behind this next picture brandon what stood out to you in that trailer i mean obviously the very end it's a ufo if it's not aliens i, I don't know what it is 
I'm just going to say this right now. Aliens are definitely real. I'm letting you know that, Brandon. Uh, <laughs> UFOs are UAPs, right? Un- unidentified aerial phenomena. Let's call them what they are. Uh, this looks so exciting. I think Jordan Peele venturing into this alien space. And of course, he's going to, he's going to flip it on us. I think he has to. Like he's, he's, this is his initial show of his hand of what we think is going to be in his, like, um, in his playbook where he's going to show us aliens. He's going to show us uh, this uh, family trying to capture footage of them. And it hopefully just turning on its head and becoming completely doomed for them all. Sign me up. Brandon, any other thoughts before we talk about the next trailer? I will say I like the back and forth we get between Daniel Kaluuya and and Kiki Palmer. I think we were wondering how that dynamic was actually going to play out, what their relationship was. This gets a lot more clarity to that. It gives us nothing into Stephen Young's character. It just shows us that one scene at the rodeo, which infers to me he is probably going to die. And I don't want that because I want, you know, meaty roles for him, but whatever. Uh, I mean, again, it, it was another, you know, Jordan Peele, you know, somewhat interesting mystery movie with a lot of sci-fi twists coming at it. I was coming at it from a really interesting angle. I love that we got more footage about it. I can already see the people going, you know, this is too much. Why did you show us all of this? But for me, it provided much more of a definitive context go into this. And just as a reminder, that Nope movie does release on July 22nd, and I will most likely be writing a review for ASU Odyssey. So that's going to be an exciting one to cover. Next trailer we're talking is Black Adam, the next in the DC uh, movie franchise. We have The Rock taking on the role of what I assume to be like a Shazam kind of anti-hero. But we're going to see, okay, this new trailer features a whole like roster of new heroes to focus on, which is actually the reason why I wanted to talk about it because how new some of these heroes look to me after not having a lot of familiarity with them. Um, you know, Dr. Fate, somebody like him, isn't that like in front of my screen every day or, or isn't talked about all the time um, on my feeds. But um, that character who can enlarge, I can't remember his name, something to do with Adam, right? Uh, Adam Smasher? Is he the one who grows like Ant-Man? I, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, with, yeah, uh, no, with no Centineo. Oh my, yo, he's going to be that character, that hero? We don't see his face, but he is going to play him. Oh, it's oh, okay, sweet. Um, I wanted to talk about it. It's a new superhero trailer that it it really encourages, or I'm sorry, excites me for those action sequences. Um, I think I am still like more focused on the Shazam part two, given all of those um, uh, female leads that we have uh, as the like villain villains there. But I think this trailer is excellent for what we've all been expecting um, for DC. Brandon. What do you have to say about Black Adam's trailer? I mean, look, The Rock has been signed to this role since 2007, I think it was, 2007, 2008. So he's been signed for a while. So the fact that we are finally getting this after him hyping it up to no end, and at least for me, like, I was kind of like you. Like, I'm waiting more for Shazam 2 just because what David Sandberg and Asher Angel and that whole team gave us with that, I think, was so delightful and charming in a way that not a lot of comic characters have been in the last number of years. Whereas Black Adam was being deliberately taken in the direction of, you know, this is a bad guy who can do good and noble things. What can come out of that? We're getting a lot of just society connections in there with obviously, but you mentioned Adam Smasher. There's a lot more Dr. Fate in this than I thought it would be, uh, which I'm not sure if that's just a trailer thing to be like, oh, it's Pierce Bros and we want to put him in. But I was a little surprised at that. That being said, the trailer is really cool. Um, I like the action bits in it quite a bit. I love that sequence 
of um, of Tech Adam flying alongside the fighter jets. I think that's a kind of cool contrast. Uh, the ending joke with the whole rocket, that didn't really work for me, but like, I'm not sure how the comedy is going to work as a whole. I'm not sure the Justice Society thing is going to feel too bloated. But again, the fact that this is the approach and that uh, Jaime Colazzaro, who worked with The Rock and who was directing this, uh, they did such great work on Jungle Cruise. I'm excited for it just purely as an experiment within the DCEU that could lead to a really cool Shazam 3. Uh, you wrapped up some amazing points on that. So if you haven't checked out the trailer, uh, please do it. This film's coming in the later half of this year. We uh, see release date of October 22nd is when we can expect Black Adam uh, on our major screens. I think Brandon's it's the last... Oh, sorry. I, was just saying, I think it's the last DC movie of this uh, year because Aquaman got pushed back, didn't it? It did. So... Yep. And, Shazam, and Shazam's not even approaching yet, is it? No, Shazam's next year too, so... <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's all fine. We have Thor Love and Thunder to keep us busy for the summer, and exactly. we'll see uh, Black Adam as soon as it hits this fall. Over to you, Brandon. We have some uh, news, new news topics, and this time we're talking about one of our beloved shows on this podcast, Our Flag Means Death. What can you share, Brandon? Yes, we are. Uh, if you guys listened to our last episode, which should be up by the time you're hearing this, uh, we reviewed the back half of Our Flag Means Death. Spoiler, it's still just as good as the first half. We are both still grade A fans of it, as are a lot of you guys. We've talked to a couple of you guys online, and we've heard a lot of people just discussing outside of the plot devices sphere, which come and join us. We're very friendly here. Uh, but needless to say, we've all been hoping for a season two. We've all been praying that HBO Max and the Discovery merger wouldn't you know, screw it all up. Well, this past week, we got it confirmed in a bit of a cheeky Twitter video from David Jenkins saying, quote, heard you might want more of pirates being friends and loving each other up. So we got the second season with a whole lot of emojis on there. Uh, but really, you got us the second season with your enthusiasm, talent and joy. We love you. We love your love of the show. Thank you for such an amazing experience and working with our crew with such kind passion, to which the end of the video announced that season two is actually happening. Uh, in addition, Taika Waititi, who is the co-show runner and, you know, Blackbeard himself, we've been over this, uh, he confirmed the show will be actually filming before the end of the year. So even with the WB Discovery merger, it won't be delayed too much. He said the following, we start filming hopefully, I think, by October, and we're going to shoot in New Zealand. We shot the last one in Los Angeles. Weird place to try and do something all in the ocean. So we're going to be going to New Zealand, which is surrounded by it. That's one of the things that I'm most excited for for the next year. No release date for season two has been set, but Noah, I'm sure you are just as excited for it as I am. Was, was this at all surprising to you, given the concerns that a lot of fans were giving? Again, again the merger, the ratings, all that stuff, Tech YT's busy schedule. Was this surprising to you, and what do you want to see from a season two? The fact that we got now confirmation, it just, um, it, pro- it provides just, you know, affirmation to some of my, my interests. Like, I, I really do want to see more of a show like this uh, be explored and I know Taika Waititi, like he's a, he's going to be even more of a familiar name with his work in Star Wars, um, and uh, the upcoming Lightyear movie. Like he is synonymous with the like entertainment industry right now with all the new stuff that we're getting. Um, I'm so delighted to see a season two of this. I think I need more of uh, Blackbeard's Kraken to like be be un um, what's the word I'm looking for untethered from him as like with the help of his love in the gentleman pirate why is his name steed bonnet (laughs) i'm just so enticed by their story and i really want to see that move forward and i know the writers are clever and they're going to incorporate like so many other um very beautiful moments for minority communities and it's like let's let's promote a show like that let's push it further and so it's good to see that it's going Truly. And this is a show that, you know, we talk about sometimes shows that deserve more seasons and, you know, what the question of deserving more seasons implies. 
this deserves another season. Like you have such a passionate fan base. You have great representation. First of all, you couldn't cancel it during Pride Month. Let's be honest. That would look totally awful and just, you know. During Pride Month? Yeah, during Pride Month. This is a great gift. Um, but even beyond that, like, I, like as Taika was saying, like, it's super cheap to make. You could, and shooting in New Zealand, I think is just only going to enhance the visuals of it, which I think in a second season deserve more. I think that first season was, was much more on the lines of setting up the tone, whereas season two can actually branch out into like the high seas and like what the pirate kingdoms are able to do and things like that. Obviously, the center point of all of this is Steed and Blackbeard's relationship and where that goes and the complexities that, you know, we won't spoil it, but go listen to our part two on that. But oh, go ahead. I also want to say like the, like some of the, can I say fantasy or just like the, the lore that we all familiarize with pirate life. Like when they introduce somebody like Blackbeard, who is a familiar, like, like a tail name, like I don't even know the origin of that kind of stuff, but if they could sprinkle in more of what was in their, uh, what was in their, not superstitions. Are you picking up what I'm saying? Like, I want to see more of their world building beyond Blackbeard and this, his iteration of the Kraken, where is, can I say somebody like Davy Jones? Like, or do you think I'm relating it to, too fantastical? Like, what do you think about that? I want them to take it in the direction of more fantastical knowledge, less actually fantastical. So like things that they think are in the realm of magic and fantasy. <laughs> yeah, they're actually just that, like a guy in a locker or something. Absolutely. That would, that would fit right in it, in its, um, in the nature of the show. And, uh, I could totally see that. And again, if they do, uh, you know, again, with all the stuff we've heard, this is going to be the case, but if they do offer a bigger budget, you can do stuff like that. Like you can take it to like weird locations that aren't just like a cave on a deserted island or like a ship that you made a replica of. Like you can do more with this. And I hope that they do. And I think that whole crew lends itself to more weird and wacky adventures than we got in season one. Let's move on to our third and final topic for today. Um, to move relatively quickly, but I'm glad this is. Um, if you guys didn't know, there is actually a Madonna biopic in the works in addition to, you know, all the other musician biopics that have come out in the wake of Bohemian Rhapsody. Madonna herself is actually going to be set to direct this, and I had to look it up. She has directed before, so this isn't going to be a directorial debut, but, you know, reception-wise, that's a whole other thing, but she is going to be directing the project. Needless to say, we were wondering for a long time who is actually going to be playing Madonna. We had a couple of names floating around for the last few months, and now Variety is reporting that Ozark and inventing Anna star Julia Gardner has actually been offered the role of Madonna. Again, this is not completely confirmed, but she has basically been the frontrunner for a long time. She's supposed to accept this later this week. She would, however, beat out other high-profile contenders, including Odessa Young, Alexa Demi, and Florence Pugh, who was actually in the running for the role, uh, all of which entailed a reportedly brutal boot camp that involved choreography and singing training with Madonna herself. No release date has been set, but the production is expected to begin before the end of the year. Noah, I know that you are the Ozark fan among us. You know much more of Julia's work than I am. Uh, I am looking at her just like she is the spinning image of a young Madonna just in that image. And just knowing her, you know, she's won Emmys for Ozark. She has the experience behind her. What was your reaction when you heard this in contrast to some of the other contenders for the role? Hell yes. Get Julia Garner <laughs> out there. Get her in that leading role, especially something as prolific as Madonna. Like, this is, I think that's major. And I think it's a major win for anybody who's behind, um, Gardner in her, in her entertainment work. So I'm, I, as for hearing the news, um, I, it came right after we learned about other, like ma other major celebrity castings. And so all I can do is prepare myself for these, these retellings of the, you know, the come up, it's come up of these famous characters who we've all, or people, they're not characters, um, who we've all, find familiar in the entertainment space. This iteration of Madonna is really, I think, going to give me a perspective. Growing up, I think I was 
my parents was, I would say my mom like was a fan of Madonna because that's who played her music, but I did never found that attachment um, and like explored her music like that. So uh, curious with you, like how has Madonna entered your space, whether it was like a friend introducing you or you seeking it out? Like, what has that been like for you? I mean, like I, I still have not done a deep dive into her work. Like I have, I think I know her more from her video work than actually from her music work because, you know, Growing up with when, at least in my corner, MTV was still slightly relevant to me in it, and at least certain like sub channels and like that, I would see like throwbacks and pop up videos and like get experience from that sort of thing. But as far as her music goes, I'm not necessarily an expert, but I have dived into the actual backstory of her. And yeah, it's all fascinating. And this is supposed to actually tackle the early sort of first 10 years of her career when she was just kind of developing her image and how exactly she became the Madonna that we know. And I think that is that offers itself really fascinating narrative possibilities, depending on which angle you go with, whether it's, you know, all of the LGBTQ enthusiasm that she had at the time, whether it's actually her looks that were always controversial, whether it was uh, her early relationships. Like there's so much in there that I think you could do with side note. If there is any reference to her possible affair with weird Al, I will absolutely laugh my ass off um, because apparently that's going to be in the weird Al movie as well. So I love that kind of connectivity, but that's not what we should be talking about. Like Julie Gardner, as you mentioned, is one of the, one of the most interesting up and coming actresses that we know right now, I've heard nothing but great praise for her in Ozark. I still need to watch it. Uh, but that being said, like beating out Florence Pugh is no small task. Uh, beating out Otis Young is no small task. Like these are all great names. I'm glad that I'm glad they're giving that, that they're giving these actresses the room to grow and to breathe and to interact with Madonna as far as personally. I don't know how I feel about Madonna directing us because apparently her other two movies have not gotten the greatest reception in the world. I end up watching like, I feel like just fashion, like sometimes fashion shows, it, I just, I've seen like a handful of them. So I'm thinking about I, I, how iconic Madonna's looks have been. And so to me, if this is done right, like there's so many biopics coming out with like p- characters, like uh, people, I keep saying characters, Elvis, um, we have uh, Marilyn Monroe. And I'm just thinking like so many of these have the potential because of the eras that they're pulling from to get a Emmy or sorry, a, um, Oscar nomination for costume design. So if Madonna's really taking that lane seriously, I could easily see her looks pulled off in the right way. Like having that film be a contender, um, really hopeful for her direction though, because I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant with it. I have not seen her work like that unless she's directed her famous music videos. Like I've seen, I've seen plenty of her beauty her videos. I don't think she's directed her videos, uh, or at least not most of them, I should say. Like, not the most iconic ones. But again, okay. th- there's there's interesting pieces here. We'll just have to kind of wait and see. And apologies there for listeners. I am I did not, um, I'm not aware of Madonna's directing work. That's why I'm saying maybe she did this, that. But um, directing her own life, um, I only know she'll treat it with as much attention as she treats all of her music. Of course, let's move on from there into our quick hits portion of the show. This is the portion of the show where we each take a topic that maybe isn't enough for a widespread discussion, but we want to get it across to you guys anyways, because we find it interesting. And you have to deal with us, or you can skip to the time codes below if you don't want to. Uh, 15 seconds. (laughs) Needless to say, Noah, let's start with yours first. All right, this is where you're going to stop skipping. You're going to listen. Okay, we have, I don't like that voice that I pulled out. Okay, so this is where you're going to stop, collaborate, and listen. (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm going to start in two and one. So depending, oh oh my gosh, I'm reading my own notes. Okay. Sean Levy is set to direct Deadpool three with Ryan Reynolds returning for this third go at the Merc with a mouth who we all know. Um, if you don't know who Deadpool is, come on, 
Google. It's right there. Okay. The news here isn't that Levy has worked together with Ryan Reynolds um, for two projects in Free Guy and um, the Adam Project, which I think we are both fans of here on this pod. Um, but the movie is expected to receive an R rating, just like the two pre-installments, uh, Deadpool and Deadpool 2. Uh, the reasons why this is news is because it's coming after a time of Disney acquiring 20th Century Fox, and that is uh, the production company that the two previous installments were under. So happy to see that they're keeping with that R rating. We know that the fans of Deadpool are fans of Deadpool because of his his lack of filter. So to know that they're keeping that just goes to show that they're still going to treat this character, I think, with the same respect for the fan base as they would um i'm not sure how to wrap this i keep looking at the time anyways it's coming at us it's going to be rated r and i cannot wait for it um sean levy and reynolds have created art in the last two years with free guys so very eager to see what they create next and time and over time uh, <laughs> yeah we got overtime. <laughs> on to mine uh let me grab mine real quick in three two so, if you have been an MCU fan specifically in the last number of months, or in the last year, I should say, you've probably been expecting or hearing a lot of chatter around a movie called The Thunderbolts, which is basically uh, Marvel's equivalent of DC's Suicide Squad. It's a bunch of villains who try to redeem themselves and fail miserably while doing it, or sometimes they succeed. It, it's comics. It works out. Uh, we didn't know we were getting Thunderbolts for a while. Now, we apparently are. Uh, that appears to be the case according to Deadline, as Robot and Frank and uh, Paper Towns director Jake Schreier will helm the project from a script from Black Widow and Agent Carter writer Eric Pearson. Again, the Thunderbolts are a facsimile to Suicide Squad. Names that have been thrown around by fans include Daniel Brühl's Helmut Zemo, Wyatt Russell's U.S. Agent, Florence Pugh's Yelena Belova, and Hannah John Kamen's Ghost, although again, none of those actors have been confirmed. Deadline's piece states that uh, Schreier's pitch impressed a lot of Marvel executives who have been looking at several new directors after John Watts exited Fantastic Four, uh, not just for that project, but for a lot of other projects, including Thunderbolts, as is the case here. Thunderbolts is expected to film next summer, and according to that article, many previous MCU actors have already been linked to try and getting their schedules clear for that. I'm excited for this. I hope they bring back as many villains as possible, including this. I think it's a really interesting concept, especially with Marvel's tone and time. Well, coming off the court sweating, Brandon, I know you are. Um, does this have any relation to Thundercats? Not at all. I don't know why. You say Thunderbolts, and I think Cats. I think Thundercats. Never seen Thundercats. Don't know what it is. Don't know even, like, is it like He-Man? Is it like um, Pokemon? Or is it like uh, Power Rangers? Couldn't tell you. Again, maybe it's just because of my generation. I don't have any interest in Thundercats. <laughs> um, this is exciting. At the mention of Helena Belova, I'm like, okay, I am. It looks like Thunder force oh my gosh what's the name of it <laughs> looks like thunderbolts is going to be uh it's going to be hot on our feeds very soon it is and it's a place for you know characters who we were wondering what they were going to do for a while like we were wondering where yelena was going to wind up where if you know us agent was going to be this could be a great place for them to be i like jake schreier's work like i don't know if you've seen robot and frank but i think it's absolutely delightful and i think whatever his pitch was i'm fascinated by and with that we are going to lean into our new movie segment for today's episode um as a a treat to all of the queer listeners. We are covering uh, Fire Island as soon as we enter this movie segment. Um, it is so exciting to explore this title uh, at the entrance of Pride Month as it came out in the first week of June. Um, Brandon will be sharing a synopsis for the movie, and then both of him and I will get into it for a dual review. Yeah, so this is Fire Island. It's a new project from Hulu. It is a 
essentially the gay reimagining of uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Uh, and if that sounds interesting to you, just keep listening because it only gets better from here, we promise. Uh, this is the next project from Andrew Ahn, who uh, directed the Sundance Starling Spa Night. And then he wound up directing my personal favorite film of 2020 in Driveway. So for me, anything he was going to do after that movie was just going to be automatically on my radar. And I'm happy to say, the movie's great. Uh, we follow primarily two characters. We follow Noah, played by uh, Joel Kim Booster, who also uh, wrote the script on this. And uh, Howie, played by Bowen Yang from Saturday Night Live. They are kind of the... Uh, de facto leaders of this group of gay men who go to a resort on Fire Island. Uh, not resort, I should say, actually a, a friend's house. The friend being played by Margaret Cho, who is a uh, lesbian who's had a lot of... Uh, basically, the joke is that she's had a, uh, a class action lawsuit that gave her a lot of uh, money. She bought a house on Fire Island. She invites the boys over every year. She's kind of their surrogate mother figure, and it's a really cute relationship. Anyways, uh, the boys go to a party on the island. They meet a... I, I should mention... This group of, uh, this group of guys is much more on the poor side. Uh, the other house is much more on the rich side. That's where we get into the, you know, classic Jane Austen classism. Uh, we meet, uh, Conrad Ricamora as Will, who is the Darcy equivalent in this movie. Uh, he's very stoic. He's very, you know, of his own mind. He doesn't really give a lot of focus to a lot of the characters, but Noah is immediately in, uh, entranced by him, uh, as are some of the other characters in the movie. We also find Charlie, who is a doctor played by James Scully, who Howie immediately kind of forms a bond with. And the whole movie is kind of this back and forth of Howie and Charlie's potential relationship and Noah and Will's kind of uh, sparks flying back and forth wherever that goes. There's a lot of drama about who's sleeping with who and who's got the drugs and, you know, what can we do on the island and the time we've got. All while Margaret Cho's character reveals that, hey, this might be the last summer we have on the island because I've actually, you know, flat broke, uh, leading to a great joke, but I'll explain that later. Needless to say, uh, Noah, going over to you first, I don't think you've seen either of Andrew Ahn's previous movies. So I'm wondering, as your first exposure to this, uh, what was your interest going into Fire Island about this and what did you think about it? I think it was you, Brandon. I think you kind of flagged this one to me and told me uh, what to expect about it after um, when you and I were discussing new movies to release. And this was such a pleasure for me to watch. I think that uh, I didn't know it was based on Pride and Prejudice. Uh, I don't oh, know. Really? I'd be curious. I'd be curious if you watched it without that knowledge, if you could see it. I mean, I don't know. I think I just was blind to that the whole time I was watching this. But I think that uh, the characters that they explore, both in Noah's like um, independent, like promiscuity of of his character, and then him trying to help his pal Huey uh, get laid for the weekend, is hilarious. Like it's it's so funny that they're going to this island where like their their retreat is indulging in um, just sex, and Noah, like the the one of the bunch who is like so after it decides to take a backseat in order to put Huey's interest um, ahead of his own. And while that's kind of like, I think that's kind of funny to do with your group of friends. It still made such made for such an entertaining movie that crosses over, not over like, not only like just a couple of days, but this is an entire week that they're there. And the title cards help us distinguish what day we're on, whether it's Sunday, Tuesday, um, <laughs> you name it when they leave. I really found myself just enjoying the pacing of it. I was never bored. And uh, I thought like it was perfect to have the cast be centered around like the primary friendship was between these two um, characters who've come from the same minority background and experienced the same hardships in like traditional society, you know, surrounded by people who are outside of their queer community. But when they come to this fire Island, it is like the, it's the Haven, right? Like it's where they can completely be themselves and explore uh, their risks within um, or take risks within their safe spaces that they've created for themselves 
movie was so much fun. I like, I could, I could go on and on, but uh, I did find myself loving so many pieces of it. Uh, Brandon, more immediately for you, um, did you feel like it was enough of an original piece or did you feel that it pulled from other romantic comedies in the same lane? You mentioned the Pride and Prejudice thing. I knew about that going in, but I thought it was much more of a loose framework. And the more that I was getting into it, the more I was like, oh, like they call each other sisters. And like, that's based on like the Bennett stuff. And then, you know, there's even the whole thing about the house where like that ties into the class and metaphors. And like, there's all these things that like, even for me, like, again, when we talked about the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice, which is weird that we talked about two Pride and Prejudice adaptations this year. Um, but even going to that, like, I still haven't read the books. Like, I'm still vaguely familiar with it. But even then, I could tell a lot of, a lot of the connections there. And I think that winds up as part of the reason why this movie is, like, to me, the perfect mix of entertaining and sincere. Like, it does both of those things so well. I mean, beyond just the fact that it's genuinely hilarious. Like, I laughed so much at this movie. Uh, Joe Kim Booster's screenplay is just full of zingers and, you know, clapbacks and just everything you're expecting. And I think with On's direction is the perfect fit. Like, I would love to see them work together again. He knows how to match On's sense of where to place characters in terms of the dramatic caps of the story, whether it's in terms of, you know, their gay experiences or whether it's in terms of their Asian experiences as well. There's a scene with Noah and Howie in the bathroom where they're kind of going over the ideas of, you know, body dysmorphia and, you know, the Asian diaspora. And it's a really powerful moment in the midst of, you know, a really entertaining all-out club sequence, but it doesn't feel jarring. And I was shocked at how well the film manages to nail that balance so often, especially with characters who are so out there and so in their own skin. But again, it manages to make it really dramatic of just like, no, we have our own problems and we came here to solve them and make sure that we can, you know, work through them properly. Those obstacles still exist regardless of um, your identity and they come with their own hardships. Like, I think a big note for me was that there's going to be little gay people out there who watch this on Hulu and they're yes. going to be so, they're going to be so happy to see another iteration of um, people in their community of these important characters who are more than just their orientation. And that, that matters now to have that and have it available on a streaming platform, not locked behind like a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a rating that they can't see. And so I find this just to be an exciting addition to the slate of um, queer cinema that they, people can look back on. And this one really is done so well because I think it, it, it leaves all of the defining moments for the queer community, like at the door, like this isn't, this isn't a movie for to invite watchers to come and like make judgments on. I think it's ultimately just about the characters and these, this is this, this is what their uh, week at fire Island looks like. Um, damn. I'm still sitting with that pride and prejudice one. It makes me think about the rain scene. Like no, no, duh. Yes, exactly. That's why that rain scene even happened. Um, I think the mistake here is, Oh, another mention. Um, very, very happy to see um, a member, a former contestant runner up on RuPaul's Drag Race season nine. Her name is Peppermint. And she is a drag queen that shows up in the second half of the movie. And that was just lovely to see somebody who I've previously seen she, on a reality show. Make she's the one. Up. She's the one of the talent show portion, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that sequence was lovely. It's one of the moments that they give their male, um, the romantic interest, Will, they give him a chance to shine and actually let loose. But he plays this uptight lawyer, rich, like kind of comes off class his character because Noah and Howie and their group of friends are, they're all, they all talk about how poor they are. And so um it's funny to see that struggle too, of like breaking cans in the grocery store. And you put him up oh, against yeah. this other character, just in the nature of Pride and Prejudice, Will. Um, and 
he is so, he's so bland when put up against them because of his restriction or his constriction in himself. So I was waiting for them to let him let loose. And at that drag show, I I was happy we got that moment because as a, as a viewer, and I love my romantic movies. I gave, uh, Cyrano, I gave that a 10, uh, here on fire Island. I was just, I needed more to fall in love with the character will and wish for him to be with Noah. Um, shout out to the name Noah. Yeah. How did you feel about the romantic interests here and the relationships that they? Uh, it's funny because you mentioned the you mentioned the, dyna- the dynamic of Fire Island. They even joke about it early on, where it's like, like you watched Avatar, you understand the reference where it's like the Ember Island thing, where like oh, time stands still kind of thing, and that reminded me of kind of this thing, Ember Fire, of course. But it reminds me of the idea of when you're in this place of just people, you know, who you are comfortable with. That that idea of uh, that idea of necessity and time can just slow to a pulse. And I love how the, the movie kind of recognizes that, but it doesn't drag. It just lets the characters inhabit that idea of we're just enjoying this and going through it in a place that is, you know, outside of San Francisco or outside wherever we're from, that kind of thing. And I love the dueling ideas of romance between, you know, Howie and Charlie and how they kind of, they build up this really sincere back and forth between one another and Noah and Will who kind of have to break each other down and rebuild each other back up. It's a great dichotomy between the amount of romance needed for both, but it works for both. And it also goes back to the idea of, I think you briefly mentioned this, the idea of like how early on the idea of Fire Island being this, you know, LGBTQ heaven, it is that, but it's also this place where like there are different facets and different classes and portions like that. You know, we have the, uh, that jerk, oh, who is it? Uh, Braden, the guy who like comes down the stairs and like every time they make yes. a joke, like, oh my yeah, it's like, gosh. Oh, can, can I help you with something? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're doing this. Like, it's not just a thing of, you know, it's all peace and love. There's actual drama there, and it doesn't feel forced. It feels genuine to that community, but it doesn't feel like antagonizing it at all. Like, Andrew Ahn is a gay man, you know, Joel Kim Booster. Like, this is all written and directed by, you know, people in the LGBT community, and I think the fact that that shows in its sincerity, but it doesn't dilute from just having fun with it. You know, this movie does something interesting too in its drug sequence because they all take some sort of psychedelics. So they do like kind of like a roulette style, you know, choose the drug that you want to take here. Um, they all pick from a, a blind pocket essentially. And when Noah's, going to, when Noah looks around and is observing his friends at this, at this, you know, get together, this party, he's really defining at that moment what drug they must have taken because of the way that they're acting. And I thought, the fact that it's airing on the side of informative rather than just like poking fun and making laughs. Like even if you have a loose definition about something um, who knows if you'll encounter that, like for some younger audiences, I thought that it was cool that they had that portion. I, I found myself like entertained by it and also going, damn, like that's pretty great to have that because having the mention of Molly on like another piece of media growing up, I feel like people would berate it and be like, what are you doing? Like talking about these drugs, but here it's done in a way that I think is tasteful and it's informative. Are there any jokes that stood out to you? One of which is, and I will go through this super quickly, uh, when Margaret Show earlier on is, you know, saying, oh, I'm, I'm flat broke. Why? I was an early bester in Quibi. That is actually because this was oh. marketed as a Quibi series first. <laughs> Yo, Brandon, the, Qu- the Quibi joke, the, the turn your phone to the side for the alternate experience. Like, yes. Sophie Turner, what did you do in that ad? I remember she was promoting Quibi and I'm going to call her out for it because what were you doing? <laughs> the other one was... um it's the one at the very ending which i you know spoiler if you know the story of pride and prejudice but the story but the idea of one character says their love to another and i just love the actual proximity of just like oh no 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 what the heck are you doing like the just the, the investment of the characters in that moment so tell me who are howie and charlie who are they 
Uh, Howie is based on Jane, and Charlie is based on uh, Charles. Howie would be Rosamund Pike. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Brandon, how can I call myself a, a, a participant of directorial debuts if I can't remember Pride and Prejudice like that? Damn. I mean, to be fair, you also haven't read the book, right? No, I have not. Yeah, so you're in the same book as me. I'm trying to think of one, but it's like situational comedy is what's going to get me. So when they showed up to that party, um, they show up to one underwear party and they they bring like this bottle of champagne or they brought like some some form of alcohol to drink and they're walking up to the party and they don't know that it's going to be like on top of a mountainside like mansion like just you look at this house and you think damn i'll never afford that or like this is it is a beautiful house who even lives here like it looks like it's just a show like a museum I should really quick say before we wrap this up, uh, Jay Wadley comes back to the music. And as a fan of his, again, score on driveways, I thought this was magical. Uh, but then also to get into the music, uh, one of the best Britney Spears karaoke moments in film, maybe ever with the uh, sometimes karaoke. It's not coming back to me. Um, it's the one where Howie is singing with like the two background dancers. Like it's yes. super cute. Oh, yeah. Yes, that is really nice. I, oh, this movie is beautiful to watch. I think you watch it, you're literally, it's rides on, it floats on like this fun aura the whole time. And it's, it's romantic comedy. How can you not love it? For me personally, this is a strong eight and a half out of 10. I found this absolutely delightful in all the right ways. Some of the side characters, I'll admit, don't get as much of development as the main four. I wish there was a bit more dramatic cues to it. I wish there was a bit more style to it all. It just feels very naturalistic for what it's going for. But that being said, I freaking love this. Like the characters are so genuinely lovely. As a Pride and Prejudice adaptation, there's just a lot you could find in there. Between Andrew Ahn's subtlety and emotional directing and Joel Kim Booster's really quirky and really into it writing, there's a lot of subtext into both Asian and gay communities that's, that this movie addresses, but it's a great just watch all the way around. You know, make it a must watch for Pride Month and you absolutely not regret it. Me and Brandon sometimes stand on the same stair steps. So I am actually at an eight and a half as well. Yeah. Uh, there's so much. Uh, love that is showcased here and not through and beyond the romantic love, just the interconnectivity of these found families and the, this one space that they have. Although they're located across the nation, they can still come together and create very fond memories, even if they last one week. And the goodbye never feels like a forever goodbye, which I think all of us can relate to with some of our closest friends. I really enjoyed this movie surrounded by some of, some of my friends who identify as queer, um, part of the LGBTQIA community, I think that we just had a laugh. Like every single scene, I think we were po- poking fun at each other um, and really having a genuine time with this. So Brandon says must must watch for Pride Month, and I second it. Eight and a half here. And Fire Island is playing, of course, right on Hulu. Go watch it, please. We're going to move on to our next major release of the week, Hustle. Uh, this is the latest from Jeremiah Zagar, who did the, uh, again, another Sundance movie, uh, We Are Animals, which I'll admit I have not seen, but I've heard really great things about. This is his first, uh, quote-unquote, mainstream project. Uh, it stars Adam Sandler in another dramatic role coming off of what seems like a bit of a renaissance for him after uh, after Uncut Gems. He's obviously worked in drama before, but that film kind of opened the floodgates, so to speak, after a lot of Netflix projects were Let's just call them not so great. Uh, spoiler, this one's way better than most of them. Uh, it stars Adam Sandler as Stanley Sugarman. He is an international uh, NBA scout working for first uh, Robert Duvall's character, Rex Merrick, and then later for Ben Foster, who we just talked about recently in The Survivor. And again, he is really versatile in this as uh, Rex's son, Vince. As we move into the movie, we essentially see more of Stanley's struggle and where he's going for. There's a min- there's a mundanity to what he does. He's been away from his family for a while. His uh, wife, Teresa, and his daughter, Alex, played by Queen Latifah and who is Alex uh, Jordan Hall, who I believe is a newcomer as well. 
they're both really missing him for obvious reasons, but he can't do anything about it. Needless to say, uh, Robert Duvall's character passes away, who is the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. Then Foster then takes over the company and says, Stanley, you got to keep scouting even though you want to be a coach. And Stanley's like, well, I don't like you, but okay, fine. So he goes to Spain. There's a prospect that falls through. He encounters a street ball game. And then he finds uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez, who plays uh, Bo Cruz, a single dad who is taking care of his mother and his uh, young daughter. Stanley is vividly impressed by his skills and offers to take him back to train uh, for the NBA draft. He is reticent, uh, of course, to go with Stanley, but then both wind up having an agreement. Stanley winds up paying for him basically out of his own pocket because of disagreements with Ben Foster's character. And the whole movie essentially turns into a big old sports drama of, you know, is Bo good enough to play in the NBA? Is Stanley good enough to coach him? Is he good enough to be a coach, to, you know, be a loving father to his daughter and a uh, you know husband to his wife? All this, you know, sports movie cliche that, spoiler more is done really well, but I want to hear from Noah first. Uh, what did you think going into this? Obviously, with Adam Sandler branching more into dramas in recent years, uh, your idea about this, and what did you come across to this? I had no doubt in my mind that Sandler was going to pull this off. I think he isn't um, a one-note actor for me, and Uncut Gems like to find that for uh, so many people, and even myself. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, I knew, I knew he had it before then. Um, the man is just talented, and he put so much, I think, of himself into what he does. And here, it's no different. I was engrossed by his character. I, um, because of that Sandler familiarity, like he he can say whatever, and I'm just like, and I'm waiting for like the next gag. Like he he really does do comedy so well that I'm just waiting for it. But in here, he plays more of a serious character. You know, watching his weight, trying to be a good father. Uh, while he, while his teen daughter is in that uh, stage where he doesn't really feel like they have the best connection. And then here he is um, becoming a, like a, a father and a mentor in his latest prospect for the NBA as he recruits um, Bo Cruz. And I think that while, while that relationship was introduced almost to kind of be like that, that father or like mentor and student, um, but Bo never had a father. So, I feel like that relationship was going in that direction. Um, what became, I think, more important was Stanley's connection to the industry because of his conflicts with the new team owner, because of him kind of, he put his entire life and family's life on the line just for the sake of getting this prodigy, like Bo is a prodigy and getting him in front of the eyes of the NBA so that he can be recruited. I found that to be, a, that was more of where the intensity came from. Um, you know, I will watch basketball when it's on, but hardly do I seek it out in this movie. I completely found myself entertained. You know, they have excellent editing, whether it's in the training sequences of the basketball or during the game. Um, and I've just, you know, each time it was on, it wasn't something that I was like snooze fest. <laughs> I was watching it and I was impressed by what they were able to pull off. So um, color me interested for this movie. It held up to my expectations, I thought. I think that this is a typical underdog story. Not a lot of story beats like to be surprised by there. Excellent chemistry, I think, between Queen Latifah and Adam Sandler. My early notes are just I walked away from this going, damn, that was a good movie. Almost similarly to Maverick, where I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. But at the at the film's close, you know, sports movies, they're just not always up my alley. But Bruised, you know, won me over here. It's the same story. You mentioned Bruise, and I think he doesn't quite know which elements of the movie to focus on. This does. And Jeremiah Zagar, who, again, I have not seen his first movie, Where Animals, but apparently it is much like this, where it is not necessarily rewriting the wheel of its genre, but it's doing it so well. And what I appreciate about this is a lot of things. Like, number one, I love the opening scene. I love the, you mentioned the editing. I love the kind of fast-paced cutting to whatever that song is in the intro of him just 
going back and forth between hotel rooms, like random fast food and, you know, he FaceTimes Queen Latifah and he's like, you're killing yourself. And he's like, I know. And there's that just subtle darkness the movie immediately plays into you for that. Yes, this is Sandler being charming and welcoming and, you know, as quirkily funny as he is, but there is darkness there and he can play into that real deep, you know, kind of sad clown mentality almost immediately. And he loses himself, I think, in similar in similar fashions of his other series characters, where he becomes so consumed by his like where he's facing that he forgets the world around him. And I think that's where the danger lies, as he's such a he's a hazard to himself. And he doesn't realize it because he gets big wins. And he's a position he's in a position where the riskier, like the better, because he just knows he's gonna win out in the end. Some of the scarier parts as a viewer, um, I recognize was like entering through um, like entering the U.S. border for someone yes. like Bo, uh, it's so scary because here Stanley is a recruiter, an international recruiter. So when he invites somebody in, um, and they get stopped and have to go through whatever kind of custom processes that they have to go through, because Bo has an assault charge in the U.S., like because if because of that, now if he so much as like they mentioned in the movie, you know, passes doesn't stop at a stop sign he could have his visa revoked like permanently. And I think that that is something that they, they kind of went over. Um, and then they returned to it later as violence, like started rising in bow again. But that was horrifying to me because that's like, it, it's almost manipulative to me because the recruiter is putting so much faith in them, in the minds of these potential professional athletes who I, uh, I, any fan of, obviously any fan of the NBA is going to watch this and be like, that's who so-and-so that's so-and-so that's da-da-da. I got a short list and maybe I recognize <laughs> I'm not going to talk about who I recognize because it was a short list. Just say, literally the end credits is all like a who's who of NBA basketball players in the movie. And so many credits are like themselves, you know, himself. Uh, and uh, sorry, I think, oh yeah, just returning to that point. It was just that, that was where the scary part kind of came in. Cause you weren't sure about Bo's future as much as Stanley wasn't, but you, yet you were still in the room, <laughs> in the room, you were still watching those scenes where he's just telling Bo, to continue to believe in him and like put so much trust in him and he's risking it all. Totally. Like th- there's the element of, you know, you mentioned the uncut gems ness of it all. And I think there are elements to that of this where it's Sandler's character loving the thrill of it. But I think here he is much more tied to the humanity and intimacy of his family, which is where I think the relationship between him and Queen Latifah kind of shines through the relationship between him and uh, Jordan Hull as Alex shines through. I love that moment in the beginning where, you know, he's dropping her off with her friends and he goes like, Oh, uh, hugs for them, but no hugs for me. Like there's that thing of like, he wants to be a good dad, but he doesn't quite know how to interact with his family still. Cause he's been gone for so long. Uh, but again, like that genuine nature is there and it, it ties back into the whole uh, thing with Bo's uh, criminal record too. It's like, that's a huge cliche of just like, Oh, look, a lower class person with, you know, a criminal record. And then the privileged white guy has to go rescue them. But like, again, like it's done well and it establishes stakes to a movie where both characters are not perfect and they have to learn to not be perfect together. Yeah. Bo's big struggle throughout the film is really to drop his sensitivity around, um, you know, play people playing mind games while on the court, which he doesn't like, he doesn't have experience from because he's somebody who had been, you know, out of the game, I guess, professionally because he played when he was a kid, right? He played all the rules were there and in place. And then in the streets of Spain, he was kind of just playing like the film's title is playing to hustle people. He's playing for money and he knows how he knows his, um, his hand in the game. And he knows that he can beat them in those neighborhood courts. But now when he's in the professional, uh, 
lens. It's like, it's, it's changing how he has to play the game and they do very well in terms of making us believe like how he got there and uh, Stan Lee's relationship to him is essential. And so I thought that that was handled very well. Um, I was going to say, we, we would be remiss not to mention some of the supporting players in this uh, Ben Foster, who just gets to be absolutely despicable as Vince. Yeah, he's um, terrible. Hi- Heidi Gardner, who plays his sister Kat, who is from SNL. Uh, she's a nice kind of presence in the movie. You support Stanley. I have to mention though, Anthony Edwards as uh, Kermit, who is uh, Bo's rival throughout the whole thing, is great in this. He's terrible. I mean, he's yeah, he's so great good. because he's so terrible. Oh my god! And he acts like the friendly, like get to know you, and then just decides to rip him apart. And yeah. dude, the way he played games, it made me think like, damn, are, do they, are they this aggressive at that stage? But I'd never know. And if it is, that's ugly. And from what I've heard, it does tie into that kind of athlete mentality of like, you know, as Sandler puts it, like you have to be the iceberg of that thing of like, you're there to perform and, you know, do your thing. And, you know, Edwards's character is such a great foil because he's not really there for any personal reason. He's just there to do his own thing. Like it's set up from that great first line of like, we have to put on a show. Like he knows what he's doing there and he's subtly trying to get Bo on the same page, but also kind of not like you, you can't really tell until like the last match that they have. And he's like, he's just losing his mind. How did you feel about learning the minimum salary for an NBA player is 900,000. That is a whole economic conversation that we are not prepared to have. <laughs> uh, so we are not certified to discuss. <laughs> Excellent. Brandon, if you are ready, we can dive right into ratings. Uh, I'll take the lead on this one. I think that, uh, whether you're a sports fan or not, there's so much risk in this film that I think you can be teased to either be let down in the end or rewarded. And sometimes, you know, it's the former, like they give you all of this material just so that they can drop you and break your heart later. Here, I think if you root for the underdog, you will be rewarded for that. And it's it's a pleasurable experience throughout. Um, you've probably seen a movie with plenty of these similar elements, but with this cast of characters, with all of these um, celebrities and like uh professional players involved um i don't know his name but he was in the john wick film and he was in he was like the first kill in the chapter three i remember because he killed him with a book and um i served him when i served sushi downtown i remember him oh my gosh but anyways uh he shows up and he's pretending to be a 22 year old with a 10 year old son and that part's hilarious there's so many cameos in here um you can't watch it and not be entertained so for me this is a seven and a half uh, Boban Marjanovic from the uh, Dallas Mavericks is who you're thinking of. That's right. Um, and I love that joke too. And I love how he pops up later. It's just like, yeah, I yeah. Um, Parts of this film had me thinking, you know, is this supposed to be like biographical in any sense? Or are we just writing with like whatever they tell us? Cause no, seeing him on the screen, I was like, wait, he's not really, he wasn't really 22 and he got recruited, was he? But you know, that's a different conversation. Totally. Uh, for me, this is again, solid eight and a half. Like this is really good. I think to me, it's probably one of my favorite sports movies in recent years. Again, even though I have almost no context of basketball in the NBA, like I don't follow it much either, but I was just so entrenched by the relationship between Stanley and Bo, their separate kind of support systems, their separate journeys throughout the film. And again, when it needs to get dark, it goes there. When it gets to be, you know, oh, buddy, buddy, you know, sports league and stuff like that, like it gets to be that. It doesn't rescind its cliches. It utilizes them to the best of its ability that allows you to really root for it. And we're going to talk about it similar note when we talk about Miss Marvel, that sense of like rootability in your project. And this has all of that. Like, even if you are not a sports nut, you should definitely give this a shot. If not just the fact that Sandler is again showing that when he wants to be, he's one of the best dramatic performers living. He just doesn't do it that much. And when he does, it's a treat. We are talking Jurassic World, Dominion. 
I mean, we had Jurassic World, you know, that was, that was the comeback. And then it was Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. This uncertainty about Jurassic World, even in its title, is going to be a little hint of the discussion we're going to be getting into. Uh, Brandon and I have not disclosed how either of us feel about this movie yet. So this is kind of be a, a live conversation. Um, I have a couple things to say first. It is a dinosaur movie. It is a terrible dactyl movie. It is a veloci, veloc, <laughs> it is a velost in itself raptor movie. And it is a, this is my worst one. Try to laugh Ceratops movie. I'm not proud of the last one. Okay. Like I said, so we can move on. Okay. What was this story about? I'm going to give you the butchered summary that I can remember from my Friday night viewing. So we got our new life in this perfect family after Claire, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, and Chris Pratt's character, uh, Owen. Owen Grady, uh, bunking up together in this cozy cabin and with their um, daughter, who they're secretly harboring and uh, parenting the young Maisie Lockwood. So she is... From what I remember from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, she feels very attached to the dinosaurs because I was going to say, herself. spoilers for Fallen Kingdom if you have not seen it. Absolutely. So if you have not seen Fallen Kingdom, go ahead and fast forward 15 seconds over and over and over and over and over. But talking about Maisie Lockwood, she is the descendant of the original Lockwood from the original franchise. At least that's what the story is throwing at us. And she is... <clears throat> there's a lot to say about her character. What I remember from the Fallen Kingdom, Brandy, you correct me if you have stronger details here, but I think she's like half dino. No, so she is the first, like, human clone just made from the same technology that cloned the dinosaurs. I see. So, spoiler alert, Fallen Kingdom, at the end of the movie, they release these dinosaurs out into the world, deciding that it is better that this life persists rather than controlling, um, you know, controlling our break from the natural order of life something along those lines so her character Maisie Lockwood releases these dinosaurs and then we're expecting a story about world dominion the brontosauruses are in the San Francisco Bay you know things like that pterodactyls are swooping lovers off of the top of the Eiffel Tower as soon as they propose um so None of those things happen. I'm just letting you know about what I expected. Anyways, they cozy up in a cabin together with Maisie Lockwood as their half-daughter, half-dino daughter. daughter. (laughs) Although the movie is called Jurassic World Dominion, uh, we don't have more than like a few scenes about these dinosaurs in an uncontrolled environment, which is my first gripe. But um, this movie sees the original trio come back with the characters so that they can all um, work together to stop advantage taken by insert evil faction because they kidnap Maisie Lockwood. And guess who's back? The Velociraptor Blue. You would know that it's blue because of the blue stripe on the side of its body. Um, but what does Blue do here? Blue has in fact produced a child. So it is a, it is now introduced that these dinosaurs can self-reproduce. Um, shout out to that. And so... Because life finds a way. Life finds away and so owens um reconnecting with blue is a uh, intense one because blue loses her child <laughs> blue loses their dinosaur baby and Maisie is also captured so what do this evil faction want to do with them they want to um oh my goodness i forgot to talk about the plagues so there is a locust swarm happening in this movie okay like i said butchered all over the place you're with me aren't you so locusts are in sweeping across the crop world the agricultural world has gone unbalanced because of these somehow genetically altered locusts are now eating so much that it is it has potential to rupture the food chain and so that involves bringing back Sam Neill as Alan Grant, Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm, who they 
I'm sorry, they wasted in Fallen Kingdom, and Laura Dern as Ellie Sadler. So they are now involved in this globe trotting. Where do they go? Probably somewhere in Italy and then another place in Europe. But they are involved in this globe trotting adventure to try and stop this evil faction from um, continuing to produce these genetically altered locusts because it could ultimately really hurt the world like the movie really never tells you like why like it's it's a big deal but they're not like telling us why it's the biggest deal right now when there's dinosaurs on earth i was gonna say they kind of do because they're like if this you know this swarm of locusts goes around the world it'll destroy the food chain then we'll both us and the dinosaurs will have nothing to eat okay what follows is Oh my goodness. And listeners, I'm sorry if this is a hard time to get through. It's hard for myself to talk about this movie. Um, Brandon, I am going to toss over to you as my, um, support assistant here in providing those gaps of the details that I'm talking about. But what you really got here is a movie. Uh, it's called World Dominion because yes, these dinosaurs are now unlo- unleashed in the world only to be controlled yet again by a power hungry, um, faction that wants to uh, take advantage of this, of these projects. It leans, I think, a little bit too far into the Maisie Lockwood, like self cloning sci-fi-ness of it. Um, had it just been a film about dinosaurs and the havoc that they ensue once released upon modern day, I think we would have had something so much stronger than what we are going to talk about. New characters are added. We get some scenes with practical effects that are ref- that are reminiscent to the original Jurassic Park. However, I think for reasons that Brandon and I are about to get to, you'll find that this is not something we are roaring about. Um, do dinosaurs roar? We don't actually know. Like I was talking with the no, 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 because I was talking with the I was talking with a coworker the other day. We don't know how dinosaurs sounded. They could easily just talk like hi. We wouldn't know. It could have been falsettos. Okay, Um, and hey, I'm a like. I'm not a dino hater, okay? All those dinosaur titles I gave you because I care about the Jurassic franchise. I mean, hell, I went to go see it. But Brandon. I know I missed some stuff. What else can you tell us about this movie before you and I just tear it apart? At, at this point, I don't want to even do anything. Like, you've taken over this review, and I applaud you for it. <laughs> um, that being said, I will mention, B.D. Wong comes back again as Dr. Henry Wu, who just cannot stay away from the science. Uh, we also have uh, DeWanda Wise, who pops up as Kayla, who is an Air Force pilot who aids uh, Owen and Claire in trying to get uh, Maisie back. We have Amudu Ati from a bunch of other things as uh, Ramsey, who is the kind of second in command. And then we also have Campbell Scott from I, Amazing Spider-Man and a bunch of other things as uh, Lewis Dodgson, who actually, if you remember from the first movie, he's the guy talking to Wayne Knight about the uh, shaving cream cans and kind of goes away for a while. As in fact it was, he has been forming his entire, you know, separate rival company to Hammond and Lockwood's technology in the meantime. Uh, and as, finally, last but not least, uh, Colin Trevorrow comes back in the director's chair from the first Jurassic World movie. This is a lot more of the tone that, you know, he was trying to establish with that movie. He co-writes this with uh, Emily Carmichael, who did the second Pacific Rim movie. And yeah, I think I'm going to be a little bit more positive than you are. Uh, not by much, just a little bit. Um, I think this is worth the spectacle. I think you mentioned the whole practical effects thing. I think every movie they've been embracing more of the practicality of the effects, and I appreciate all of it for it. And I think the opening 20 minutes or so, plus the Malta chase scene, I think those are both enough to kind of raise the bar for me a little bit to go, I had fun. This movie does have some moments that I think allow our characters to shine. I think strictly that relates to our new characters and, you know, in our new, in our new trilogy characters as well, in Claren, in Claren, in Claire, in Owen, I made my own ship name for him. Um, but regarding the original trilogy, I think they came and they were part of the movie, but I think 
fans will agree most of their defining moments come from the films before, you know, as much as they have to do here in rescuing Maisie in facing off again against the unstoppable forever ferocious, always like our champion at the end of a Jurassic movie, for some reason, the T-Rex, um, they don't do as I, as I think fans would expect from a returning cast. Um, speaking of cast, this movie's heavy. There are so many characters we are asked to focus on old and new, like potential standouts for me and potentially like outshining the original trio were Brandon's had, uh, praise, on Twitter for DeWanda Wise and her character, yeah. who I love. This isn't a character that's surrounded, enveloped in goodness that we need to root for because they are so more morally correct. Like she is transporting a child or she's transporting cargo that she was just paid a large sum for. And ultimately she's just getting her job done. Now it's with the notice from her peripherals of a little girl being involved in this exchange that really gets her involved in the story. Um, and I think that element of her character is like, yes, I, I love this character who is not, um, you know, entirely enveloped in goodness as our other main characters are like potentially they could turn on them. Like this could go South. And that's what I liked about her character as well as um, I became more interested in um, Ramsey Cole. The actor, sorry for the Ramsey Cole character is Mamudu Afi. And he's another face that I can't wait to see in more projects. Um, I did like what he lended to this story being somebody who was like, can we let you in on the secret that we know, or are you supposed to be far away from us? Um, that being said, it juggles way too many characters and it does seem like the tone was dialed back and this is more for like a family audience. Um, maybe it could be argued it was always for a family audience. It centers on a family in the first film. Um, Jurassic 3, terrifying. I think that one was like, ooh, that's the bar for my Jurassic Worlds or Jurassic Parks. Unfortunately here, I just, I, did, I didn't get as shocked as I expected. Blue in the first two movies is really key and critical to those movies. Like they build up Blue as like, Blue is the next big dinosaur in these movies. Like she has a connection with Owen. She's, you know, got this protective instinct. She's special in the way. And then in this movie, she gets the intro scene and she gets the ending scene. And there goes your signature dinosaur. And look at Blue now. Now here she is happy in life. And here she is as a mother. <laughs> what? Okay. Like, it's just, I think it's asking a lot for fans who just wanted to come and like see the continuation of this, not all the cards pulled. And it's asking for a lot for fans who, at least for my money, have not always loved Blue. Like Blue was meant to be built up as like a fan favorite. And I know some fans who do, but like a lot of general audiences are not connected to it as much as like, the pterodactyls or the T-Rex or even like the Indominus Rex from Jurassic World. Like, dude, they're trying to introduce a Giganotosaurus. Like every what is time they mentioned this new dinosaur, because I guess they didn't learn in Fallen Kingdom that it just didn't work. Like I, it wasn't Brandon. How do you feel about the T-Rex being elevated to like this, to this position of like, what, what do you think their treatment of the T-Rex has been since the Jurassic world movies? It's been since Lost World, at least, when they've, you know, taken the T-Rex as more than the definitive villain. Um, I don't mind it. Like, that whole shot at the end where, like, it's mirroring the whole logo, like, that was kind of cool. And it's a thing for longtime fans, the same with the returning cast, of just, like, we want this to be, like, an experience for people who have been with us either since the beginning or since the first Jurassic World to, like, really feel like this is the culmination of this story. My biggest issue is that I did really enjoy Fallen Kingdom. I know I'm the outlier on that because apparently it's become like the big pariah amongst Jurassic Park fans, which whatever, I don't care. I love that movie. But my biggest thing about that movie was the ending where I went, this is a ballsy choice because you have Maisie's decision in that movie irrevocably, irrevocably changes the world. And like, did you see the uh, Battle of Big Rock short film? Yes, and that was so great. I, that was teasing what I would 
have expected in this world dominion movies dinos are unleashed on the real world outside of i love new blar isla new bar what will that mean for citizens like are they gonna get the same treatment as those pedestrians in the park we don't get enough of that and we get that first scene with the alaskan fishing boat with the like i think it's a megasaurus where they're like yes. oh, you're doing this and then 20 minutes later it's we're going back to for lack of a better word a park that's exactly what happens, Brandon. Where are we now? In another controlled environment for the dinos. Is this gonna? Is this island gonna have the same fate as Isla Nublar? <laughs> uh, go check it out. Like, just wait and see. You I, won't be surprised when it does. You know. Again, it, I was telling again a coworker this of mine this was like I'm fine if you like this. Like again, for what it is, and again, like another bottleneck Jurassic story. I guess it's done well enough. A couple of the scares are there. The practical effects are a nice welcome. If you care about the characters, it's there. But for me, you cannot irrevocably change your world building at the end of your last film. Come into this, and with all of the plot that this movie has, and as you mentioned in your you know, fabulous intro, it has a lot of plot. But with all of that plot, if you cannot make that setup do something, what is your problem? So standouts for me in terms of scenes, they're going to be Claire's escape from the dino with the manicured yeah, nails. That was great. As well, beginning to end, that entire sequence, they I love the visuals there. I love her being shrouded by green, even as she enters the water. Um, it, it's in the trailer, and it is just even better in the in the film. So I, I think that that would stand out, as well as... Um, there is a scene where the, it's not the entire trio, but it's at least Ellie um, amongst others moving through this tunneled like area. And that's where I think you get some nice jump scares with different types of dinosaurs. Um, and then everyone's, you know, some of the, I think some people like this, it's like a fan favorite dinosaur, the one with the, with the wings on the side of his face. And he like, he shoots yeah, out the, the kind of a uh, what's it called like the peacock dinosaur or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, that one, that intimidating creature comes back, and he and he standouts like let's let's give some flowers, you know, let's throw them, let's skim away. You mentioned the original cast already, and yeah, it's cool to have Jeff Goldblum properly back after Fallen Kingdom. You know, having Samuel and Laura yes. in there, obviously, and from all the press interviews, they seem to be having an absolute time with this, and I love that they are. And even that last act where we do see, you know. The original team and the new team coming together, that's cool. Like, there's something, you know, fun about that. The only te- the only moment of, though, that really stuck to me was the moment with Ellie and Claire in the uh, computer lab, in the uh, computer area. That felt actually, like, visceral and personal. Like, that, to me, felt like a moment where they actually were getting to know each other instead of just delivering banter. And I was like, cool, where was the rest of this? That sequence was so good, too. It was them versus these genetically altered locusts who the movie tried to like pitch as like a doomsday like people like society's believing it to be like the the apocalypse and so when they light them on fire it makes you think eventually they light them on fire and release them again and it makes you think of like the reign of fire right which is like another like end, end of days um thing that happens an event but then they don't take it further than that like they don't tell us about the reception of it they don't tell us about like anybody's perspective on it that would tie it back to that. It's just they spewing at the mouth. So much stuff is being fired off in this film. I don't think Pratt knows that he's the main, that he's not the main character in this film. Nope. Um, his goodbye to blue is so not human. Like it's not really something I was familiar with. Um, it kind of seemed like a meme. So I can't wait for those. Um, I feel so mean today. I feel like I'm, I'm a mean reviewer right now. Like I'm a mean critic. You know, it's funny. Cause actually I will give a little bit of praise to Bryce Dallas Howard going back to that, because I think, her plot line of just her trying to find Maisie and just going to that towards that, you know, 
that motherly instinct that we kind of saw in the last two movies, but she was constantly trying to hide. Like her character is so focused on her work and her, you know, efforts in the world that she's kind of put past her sense of humanity that to come to the sense of a movie and see that turn, I think for me, it was a little bit satisfying as someone who has never hated the character. As for Chris Pratt, on the other hand, he gets to be buff woodsman action dude and cool if you like that. And that's about it. Other than a unnecessary chase sequence in insert European city. Um, okay, hold on. The Malta chase is awesome. I'm not going to let you badmouth that. Okay, okay. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, but will you at least agree that you knew every time, at least in the first, I mean, no, not even the first half, the entire film, Brandon, you knew if they were in an engagement where dinos were chasing them, did you believe they weren't going to make it out? Not in the first half, but I'll admit when they actually get to Italy, there were at least two moments where in the back of my head, I thought, are they actually going to cook this crap? Okay. Okay. See, I, I didn't let myself lean, lean. I didn't trust it. I was like, I don't think they'll do that. Like, and so I already wrote it off, but um, good to know that you did, that you saw some risk there. Um, why did I think they were going to take out uh, Jeff Goldblum? I think, I think at one point, I believe that they wanted, they were yeah, I know what you're talking that. about. Uh-huh. Uh, they have a very Jeff Goldblum. His delivery of his lines is always so great. And here he has a engagement where he's like fiddling with a computer um, gate code, and he has his he has his friends right on the other side of the gate being chased by dinos, and he's just treating it like like he spilled some coffee, like he just doesn't know what to do with this um, situation in front of him. That's another moment that I think is very well. But unfortunate that these moments only last maybe 10 minutes altogether, and this is a two-and-a-half-hour movie, so go in there prepared. I take it you were not a giant fan of Fallen Kingdom. Coming off of that movie, how curious were you of what they were going to do with Maisie? After Maisie's involvement in Fallen Kingdom, I understand that they were going to do something with the original science of the park. I mean, she's a Lockwood, so it has to mean something important. Did I expect this? Not at all. But are they being inventive and still trying to push what what they what their interpretation of the science would have been? Like, hard to say. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't know if I'm completely on board with like she's a replica. Do we dive into like the fact that she's a clone and that she got to she's kind of getting the same weight on her shoulders as her original like person was so the fact that she was cloned i think makes everybody who knew the original person look at her with that kind of like uh, perspective and to me that's gross like she's still a kid and that was like some murky water i think to go into because i was like i don't know about this cloning cloning kid thing brandon you i'm gonna bounce it back to you well i okay i was gonna say i only asked we'll pass it to reigns after this but i was gonna say i only asked because I know for a lot of fans, that was kind of the breaking point of Fallen Kingdom. Like, oh God, now we're doing cloning for humans and now it has nothing to do with dinosaurs anymore. Oh God, what are they doing? For me, I never really minded that because I like Maisie as a character. I like what she represents. I think Isabel Sermon does a good job at making her mature enough, but still, you know, born over as a kid. Here is my issue though. And again, this was to my, you know, own uh, prerequisites for going into this movie. I thought we were going to get the idea of like, well, if Maisie is properly cloned and we get in this movie that like, spoiler, she is, um, but like going into that, like seeing her develop her idea of like, who am I, you know, all the clone stereotypes, but it's uh, okay. That's fine. I would have been better with it if she had become kind of the mouthpiece for her actions. Like she learns from that past thing of like, I release dinosaurs into the world. I irrevocably, again, change the status quo. I have to stand up for them. 
She's kind of not doing that. She's much more internalized emo child about the whole thing. And it feels like a missed opportunity for the character to be like, no, no, no. Like, you know what it's been like to go through that process, or at least to a degree, and like to feel that sense of concern and misplacement that all of these dinosaurs have. You should be doing more. Again, she's a kid. She doesn't have to be. But it was an idea of like, you could do more with that character and that prospect than just have her be the kid who flees from the dinosaurs. I don't know. I I figured you could do more minimizing her to just like her position in the family, which is like just teen only child. So she wants to rebel and she wants to go and be free with herself. I think there's a lot more character wise that you could have done with her reflecting on the fact that, yeah, I released dinos into the real world. Yeah. Yeah. I did that. And yeah, this is like the reasons why, and I don't know, coming to terms with that would have been a lot more mature than almost like making her more immature and like putting her on this story for the sake of, I mean, I think the most important thing that she does is she helps them capture one of the raptors. Um, I mean, she helps, uh, she helps Beta, the baby raptor. She helps Beta. Let's go on to ratings. <laughs> Let's go on to ratings. Uh, for me, I'm going to be generous. This is a six out of 10. If for no other reason than I think it has enough fun and interesting moments that credit to Colin Trevorrow, I don't think I, I badmouthed him in private. It's just like, ah, oh, Colin Trevorrow is not all that. Like, he has skill. Like, I think he has his moments and he knows where to frame characters. I know what he and Emily Carmichael were trying to do with this is the big grand conclusion to the Jurassic saga. I appreciate the effort. I appreciate the mix of practical and CG. You know, DeWanda Wise steals the show. I will go off my tweet again. She's fantastic and I hope she gets all the things. But there are huge overarching issues with that that I think both fans and newcomers and just general like blockbuster fans are not going to really vibe with. Although apparently that's wrong because this movie's been getting a great audience score. So who are we to talk about? Um, but you know, as far as like for me, I wanted more. I expected more out of what Fallen Kingdom delivered. I know that wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but if this is the ending for the Jurassic franchise for now, eh. It's too bad they blew up the volcano in the sequel, Fallen Kingdom, because I bet you that <laughs> that was, uh, got strike through for, for the chalkboard of, of this, uh, this writer's room. So for me, my score does end in a 0.5. So who knows how close it's going to be to Brandon's? <laughs> my review, um, is going to be a 3.5 out of 10. That is my rating. Um, for the reasons of that follow, I'm going to give four of them. Okay. Dinosaur, <laughs> Terrible Dactyl, Velocity Itself Raptor, and Try to Lap Ceratops. Um, that is all. Thank you. I think that I will rewatch this um, as it becomes a streaming title. I can see myself throwing it on and being like, hey, remember this dino movie that came out? Oh, my gosh. I must have missed this one small scene. OK, I'm going to go get back to um, making my chili. Talking about our first peacock movie and TV on the podcast. That's true, right, Brandon? This will be our first peacock one, right? Well, first show, I think, because we did Firestarter. Oh, and that was streaming on Peacock. You got some wins there. Okay, you did earn some viewers, Peacock. But hopefully you earn more than a handful of viewers for this next series that they are kicking off as a not the first reboot, but it will be the second reboot as far as I'm aware with the two um, previous series already having the same title. I just want to start this off really, really quickly. If you have a trigger warning to any sort of gun violence or any sort of like mass trauma in the LGBTQ community, just skip ahead. We'll have time codes to like our actual just next segment, but just be warned. Absolutely. Those trigger warnings are important. Um, the two in specific are going to be gun violence and mass shooting. I will, well, we'll approach that topic very carefully when we get there. So what is this series? This series really follows, um, a 
multicast of characters all in the queer space who are um, thrust into each other's lives because of an, a very traumatic event that they go through together one um, night at a, uh, at a gay club, at a, at a gay space. And so um, the primary character here, at least the one we've been following for episode one, is going to be Brody. Uh, this character is played by Devin Way. Brody is a med student who is on leave for the summer to come spend time back in his hometown city, see whose lives he can get involved with, uh, some of which include his best friends, his ex-lovers, and some new characters that get thrust into his life after they all go through this this one traumatic evening together. Um, we have listed some trigger warnings, and we'll get into those in just a minute, but who does Brody um, interact with? Well, he has one um, ex-lover who he's trying to become friends with. He kind of shacks up with him because he's looking for a place to stay and doesn't really have a reliable um you know, place to live at right now. So he hits up Noah. Uh, Noah's his ex. Does that matter? Yes, but really we just know that these two characters are familiar with each other and they're setting some new boundaries for their new relationship as roommates. Um, Noah is actually already engaged with another um, <laughs> another member in the queer space here. It is Brody's best friend. Noah is sleeping with this character named Daddyus. Um, <laughs> very fitting name if you ask me. Uh, but who is Daddyus? We will get there, okay? You got to stay with me. So we also have other characters. Um, one is a high school senior or high school junior, I'm sorry, named Mingus. And Mingus has um, interest in uh, breaking out in a I would say like in a, in that, in this gay bar, in this gay club, there's an opportunity for people to sign up, um, sign up with the drag queen and you can like walk the stage. You can do a number. And that is definitely what Mingus is interested in. They are, um, very fashionable. They have their, they're distinct in their style. And I think the show does really good, a good way of communicating that. It isn't until Mingus arrives at the club for the evening that they realize their life will be affected by Brody and them two will be going through um, the following date, the following times together. And then Mingus's mother is also an important character in Judy. Judy is very supportive of her child's um, ideas of representation and where they want to go. And that's who Judy is. And we have another couple I've yet to touch on. Um, they are connected loosely to the relationships of um, Brody and Daddyus, And that is going to be Ruthie. Ruthie is expecting a baby with her partner named Char. We all arrive at the club. Brody is there to have a, a nice drag night with his ex Noah and roommate. And Daddyus is also there to celebrate with the two of them, kind of keeping his and Noah's relationship under under the table, very, keeping it very secret as of now, because we can only imagine what's going to happen once they find out. Um, Mingus arrives preparing to do a number. We have Ruthie who escapes a night at home with Char and because that's because she wants to come and show some support to Brody being back in town. And I think just <laughs> overall, just get drunk with her friends. I think that's what all these people are looking to do. They're going there, they're seeking a good time. Um, and all of that is really put on, hold because we are cut to a shooter entering the building. There is a shooting that takes place at the club and thus invites us all to witness like the transport of these victims to the hospital. Um, the terror and sheer shock of not realizing like how many of your loved ones may be affected by this experience. Um, it gets heavy and it, it, it gets heavy quick. So um, that is what we are diving into today. Uh, it is just the premiere episode that is available on Peacock now. Um, at the af we'll talk about the aftermath of those details, you know, if, if our conversation gets there. But for now, we at least want to talk about uh, what the show has been able to pull off and some of the um, some of the notes worth mentioning for this series. 
Brandon, we both approached this just kind of with open ears, open eyes, ready for a new series. And I, I buffed it. I hyped it up because it being released on my birthday, June 9th, and having not seen the originals, I thought, uh, you know what? What better than this, uh, this new queer title for me to kind of be introduced to what this show is about and um, to see what kind of interest it sparks. So, Brandon, did it spark any interest for you? Yeah, actually, this is really interesting. Uh, I should also mention, just going off your point, all the episodes are on Peacock as of right now. We're just only talking about the pilots just for the sake of, you know, getting you all into it, as I think you should, because I think this is a really interesting exploration of especially modern LGBTQI identity. Uh, the original two, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the British series and then the 2002 uh, Showtime series, neither of them really delved into non-binary folks or people who uh, did not necessarily pertain to just gay or lesbianism, like, this is much more diverse in both, you know, race in terms of gender, in terms of just the type of people that are put on screen. Um, one of the main characters, you know, um, oh God, Armand Fields, who plays uh, Bussy, who's the main kind of like drag patriarch of the club, who kind of becomes like a big focal point of the community after the events of the shooting. I was really intrigued by his character and what, you know, that character can wind up doing for the community later on, especially in the midst of drag culture being so prevalent in, uh, in, in, the, in the context of the series. I don't know why I started on that. Um, I like a lot of the characters in this. I particularly like Finn Argus as a Mingus, who I think is just kind of a reticent, you know, be all kid. But I think their arc is really neat. Uh, I don't necessarily, I really want them to address the fact, you know, that he is hooking up with an adult, but like, I hope we get there down the line. Um, but again, like that whole drag performance is just such a moment of joy and exuberance and the song choice is perfect. Like everything about that shot, I think is just shot so well. Um, and again, like most of the other characters, I think are tied together well enough. I would like to see further down how they all you know, interconnect, because as you tried to put it, they're very disparate. Uh, they're only brought together in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of trauma. But I like the fact how the last 20 minutes goes into the idea of much more of healing than just lingering on the violence of it all. So I'm fascinated by this. I want to keep continuing on with this. Uh, and yeah, it, I, I think it's an interesting watch. Just be aware you should watch this wherever you watch Game of Thrones. So, you know, the library, the McDonald's, the, <laughs> you know, you name it and you're watching it there. Um, you don't know what I'm watching on my screen. Okay. <laughs> don't tear up my McDonald's. <laughs> um, that being said, um, I just wanted to say that it, exploring this premiere episode, we have a lot of the, I think, like what makes gay community so fun, what makes the vibrantness of it all, like it's it's the lifestyle of they're doing drugs in the club, they're having a quick hookup right here, they're so um, invested in their own exciting experiences that it puts pause on some of like the other real world stuff until something like this traumatic happens. So when we, when we speak about um, the shooting happening at the end of the episode, I think Brandon just hit the nail on the head where like, this is going to be a full season that is about healing and coming together with your community in that space. Um, it, it's a contrast to getting with your community for the fear, like for the mere joy and fun of, of, of the moment. I think this is um, long-term, like what it means to be part of the community, like part of respecting the community is remembering it. And so remembering some of the trauma, some of the like terrorist attacks that were put on the gay community. I just, I find myself really enjoying the cast of characters so far, and it'll be something I check in with at night just to get to further experience their lives and uh, see how the show treats it. Because as, as far as what it's given, I've been eating it up. Like that first episode, I was, I was really 
impressed by like how new the story felt. Like it, it just, it wasn't spending time on, it wasn't spending too much time on one individual character. It's like, here's the intros to each of them. We're going to throw this event at you. And they're like, they're all, that was the first wave of trauma. What is it going to take to return to some form of like reality and comfortability? Uh, I'm absolutely ready for it. Even if you can't. Yeah. I think Juliette Lewis is excellent in anything that I've seen her in. Like she's very familiar to me. So, um, I got to look at like what I've seen her in, but um, her character is Mingus's mother in Judy. She's completely supportive and that's so beautiful to see. And yet uh, at the end of the show, when she's at the hospital looking for Mingus, she has that moment of like, yeah, we cheered her on for being the supportive mom and being like, yeah, like get out there, show yourself. But then we see her regret that immediately because of the, the maternal instinct, the parent, the parental instinct to be like, I wasn't there for my kid. And I thought that that was heartbreaking. And she, she delivered that scene very well. The scene of her with the elevator is easily the best moment of acting in this series so far. Like it goes to another level of emotionality that I think if you are any level connecting with it, you will enjoy. Once Ruthie and Char have their babies, I just am so interested in what that storyline is going to be. They're the only characters who are really involved with a kid. Brody does have an ex- like kind of an extended family, um, adoptive parents, as um, Brandon mentioned. And so Ryan O'Connell, who you may be familiar with in the series. From a special. Special, exactly. He's a writer. He's the lead in that show. It is magnificent. Uh, it was so good to see O'Connell play Julian, who is the adopted brother of Brody. And I only hope to see more of him. Um, there are losses at this uh shooting. So once you wrap the episode, you'll realize who has lost whom and what that journey is going to look like, even for our host of the evening, uh, Bussy. <laughs> oh my gosh, that name. Um, even I mean, for our yeah. host, Bussy, she lost somebody who was there with her, who like was in her scene. So am I, am I on board for this? Yes. Is my heart ready for the toll? I hope so, because this has potentially potentiality to be very beautiful. And uh, I'm ex- an excited viewer for it. Again, like there's also like, the moments visually where you're like, okay, I know where you're going with this. Like the whole, you know, with the babies being born right after a shooting, it's, you know, the idea of you know, people dying only to be like reborn, that kind of thing. Or even with uh, Brody, uh, his safe space is kind of in his head. The, uh, what's it, like the lit room in uh, Noah's apartment that is like redone. And then he comes to it later and it's all broken and shattered. Yeah, those are, I think those are tricks that somebody with Brandon's eye um, can only like value that much, but they're, they're, they're done in there and they're done well. Um, the mirror one, I think, um, I didn't think about it like that, but you're right. It was illuminated and it was a place of love and where they could really find themselves. And when he returns there with his ex, it's like, you're even looking at it like through a fracture, I think, like it just looks broken. But then like, again, following that up when later he's, you know, being, he's being taken care of like he pops up in that room and he sees the shooter like that trauma has infiltrated his only safe place damn yeah that's that's absolutely true Uh, like yeah this is interesting like is it muddled yeah maybe like again there's a bit too many characters that are a bit too disconnected but like if you can get into them and understand all their you know bonds and what their ambitions and what again they want to heal from i think this is worth your time at least the pilot's We'll see if we return to it for any kind of mid-season or end-all coverage. Uh, but until then, we have plenty of other TV to keep us busy. So I'm going to be turning over to Brandon for the next two Disney Plus titles we are going to be talking. Um, I will be there with you for the review, but he is going to introduce just what happened on the next two episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi. We are at Disney Plus's Star Wars series. We are talking episodes three and four. 
part three finds us basically uh, going to the destination that Haja sent us, uh, sent us to in episode two. It is a distant planet. Uh, oh, God. Uh, Mapuzo, which is basically like a farming world that's been ravaged by the Empire. Uh, Obi-Wan and Leia get into some shenanigans with some stormtroopers, a very blatant Trump All Lives Matter pastiche, uh, voiced by Zach Braff as well. They then meet uh, Tala, played by uh, Indira Varma, who was a Imperial officer who defected, uh, and is now a member of the PATH, which is a sort of underground railroad-esque thing that transports Jedi and foreign sensitive beings off of Imperial worlds. She offers to help them, only to realize that she's lost Leia and now Reva has her, that leads us into part four, where we go to the Inquisitorius, which is the Fortress of the Inquisitors, where Obi-Wan and Tala have to team up to get Leia back before some really bad things happen. Uh, Noah, over to you. Between these two episodes, I, I, I will just say for you, for me, episode three was really solid. Again, just really consistent with the momentum of the show. I really appreciate a lot of the ideas it took. Episode four, I was not nearly as high on. Were you along the same lines or were you even, you know, some, uh, some degree of either? Episode three, ramping it up. It is tenfold more um, dangerous for Obi-Wan and Leia to be together now that Vader is on their tail. And by on their tail, I mean, this is episodes three and four. I hope you've seen it before we start talking about it, because Vader is on the ground. He is choking kids, um, but he's also right on Obi-Wan's tail. So I, I can't believe I forgot to mention, like, Obi-Wan and Vader fight. Dude, it was our parting question for... The last episode coverage, right? When I, when I go, how many times do you think Vader and Obi-Wan are going to fight? And, and I was wrong. I really hope I'm, I'm right in this. And by pitching three, like I think that there's the first one, which we saw like Vader completely mopping the sands of the desert with Obi-Wan and, um, nearly setting the man on fire. Now Obi-Wan is like in captivity and he's coming up with a plan to escape. And that's what all episode four is about. But I think it really just, up the ante on what to expect from this series. Yes, it was going to be a following of Obi-Wan as he is this loner, like tired, um, no longer like as versatile in his Jedi abilities. We see in the earlier um, parts of episode three, he's trying to connect with Qui-Gon just for guidance. And so it's really a, it's really a broke down Obi-Wan and he's still pulling himself together for the sake of Leia. And I think the continuation of their back and forth, their relationship um, is done very well. Um, episode three, all about that confrontation between Obi-Wan and Vader stand out for four because yeah, four does like, I guess, I don't know four to me, like whenever we are escaping a Sith base, that's always been so, so fast and like, so done. So I think in the style of a heist movie, right? Like they're pulling off some kind of trickery. You're going to have some of these droids forget who they are. You're going to outsmart stormtroopers like and Indira Varma, um, is Tala, who is like a, um, I want to say a commander of sorts, but she really owns her authority when she talks back to the lower ranking officers on their base because she's trying to help rescue Obi-Wan. I think the women in this episode, episode four, really have moments to shine because the third sister has become entirely more menacing. There's an interrogation scene between her and Leia where we really understand even further the third sister's motivations. She's encouraging Leia to believe, or she's, you know, she's talking to Leia and just reminding her that the only person who can save her in this situation is herself. Like she has nobody but herself. When, when her friends are ultimately like taken care of, who will she rely on then? And so in a weird way, I liked that speech because it just told us who the third sister was. Like she doesn't need any other team. She believes in herself and her placement alongside Vader. And I think that is her 
major motivation. And after that scene, I just was more understanding of her and why she's so like that. Jumping into episode four real quick, I'll admit that it was a little bit of my expectations because after that whole duel in episode three, I thought we were, I really did think we we're going to get a flashback centric episode. I thought it was going to be Obi-Wan healing in the back to tank, Vader kind of going through his, you know, rage and dark side madness and Reva explaining her backstory to Leia. We didn't get all of that. We basically just got another, you know, Star Wars infiltrate the base, get the thing story. Uh, and that's totally Star Wars. And like, again, as a fan of that, I am all for that. I love how consistent it's being with the universe, obviously especially with that time period. But at the same time, I felt there could have been a little bit more substance there. I wanted to see more between Reva and Leia. I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And at the end of it, at the end of the day, it sort of becomes, I'm not going to talk to you. Okay, I'm going to torture you. Like, But I will admit, Moses Ingram is making so many lines work. And that's not to say the script is bad. I think the script is very good. But I think as far as like certain lines go, when she has Leia in the torture chamber and you know, most, and uh, Reva has to go like, well, you have to do this or serve the Empire. Like that could have been such a cheesy line, but she is so like commanding of it all. And I was like, yeah, like totally. As far as episode three goes, I was really impressed by it. I like the the notion of what Obi-Wan and Leia have to go through in that. I love that sequence on the bus. Leia is asking about her, uh, if Obi-Wan is her dad or like if you knew her dad. And there's these really subtle facial mechanisms between Ewan McGregor and Vivian Blair that just give you enough of the tragedy and sadness they're both feeling at that time that are immediately shattered with, you know, the stormtrooper scene and everything else. But I, I really liked a lot of it. And again, I have no issue with the Vader-Obi-Wan duel. I'm a little disappointed we got it so soon, but it makes sense for what it is just to be like, yeah, Obi-Wan's not at this point yet and he's not going to be for a while. He has to constantly rediscovering himself. And... Uh, basically confirming a fan theory that every one of these episodes is framed like one of the actual movies. So the first one is Phantom Menace. This one is obviously Revenge of the Sith because of the, you know, Vader, Obi-Wan duel and the burning and everything. I love that detail. It's super cool. More things need to happen in the series for me to understand what Obi-Wan's overall journey is going to be for the show, at least with himself. Like, is he continuing to lose sight of like what makes him strong? And that's why he's seeking guidance from Qui-Gon He's obviously not trying to show out because we know we see the hesitation between him and his saber. That's that's still what I'm kind of questioning. I do want to know what what is that chase going to look like and what's the aftermath of like saying goodbye to Leia? What's been going on on Tatooine with Luke this whole time, if anything? Um, I'm starting to think we're not going to get much Tatooine of the series much anymore. I think that was all for the pilot just to lead us away. Uh, it's fine. We'll spend plenty of time there with Boba Fett. I would love it if episode five was them, you know, getting back to, uh, to Dayu, then back to Alderaan. We get Leia back, you know, everything seems fine. And then that whole tracker with, Le- with uh, Lola comes into play. And the last thing we see is either Leia or Bale or Obi-Wan looking at the sky and it's Vader's fleet. And that's oh our final. Oh gosh, that will be chilling to see, but absolutely like fitting. Like I, when he was walking through that city, I was scared. And it's funny to me when he comes out of darkness, because you just see the glowing, you know, the little bulbs on his chest. And I think that that's comical. Um, and, and oh my God, the moment where the sound completely cuts out and he turns is one of the scariest things in Star Wars. It, I stand on my statement, which is like, hey, this is a show you need to watch at night. These are incredibly dark episodes and you won't really see much if you're watching it in broad daylight or not with your full focus on it. Um and and it's better. I think this show is really taking care of um, providing new material while still like having your original characters. I'm happy we're not just, you know, at the mention of no Tatooine, I'm happy we're not there. I'm happy we are venturing out. We've now seen several planets and I hope to see more on this, on this journey with our lost Jedi. 
I need Obi-Wan and Vader to properly have a moment together, especially with Vader taking off the helmet so we can really see Hayden act. I think we need to see that. Um, I would like to see more of like Bale and, um, oh God, his wife, why I'm forgetting her name, but like, I want to see a bit more of Alderaan stuff. Obviously we're getting it, you know, the, the path stuff I think is interesting. I would like it to continue the momentum, even if episode four didn't wow me. We are talking Miss Marvel episode one. If you thought we were out of the woods of, you know, MCU stuff after all the Doctor Strange and Moon Knights, nope, we're keeping going. And, you know, She-Hulk's not too far in the corner. So if you were worried, I disagree, but I get it. We um, don't stop here. Okay. Plot devices, pot. If it's Disney plus Star Wars, Marvel, we are tuning in. Get ready. I swear we're not Disney shows. Um, Miss Marvel season one, episode one, or at least I hope it's season one because I like this a lot. Um, Miss Marvel episode one. This is. Written by uh, Bijou K. Ali, who's the showrunner of the series. It's directed by uh, Adil and Bilal, who did the last Bad Boys movie. We follow Kamala Khan. She's a 16-year-old Avengers fangirl living in Jersey City with a very religious Pakistani Muslim family. Her mother, uh, Mudiba, played by uh, Zenobia Shroff. Her older brother, uh, Amir, played by uh, Sagar Shaki. And uh, her dad, Yusuf, uh, played by legendary actor uh, Mohan Kapoor. Uh, she kind of goes about her days just hanging around with her best friend, tech genius kind of nerd friend, Bruno, played by uh, Matt Lintz from The Walking Dead. Uh, but again, Kamala's big passion is nerddom. She loves, you know, fan fiction and cosplay and, you know, just being a nerd and being passionate about things. That's why her biggest goal right now is for her and Bruno to go to the first Avengers Con, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically, you know, a Comic-Con for Avengers fans and like that. With her grade A flourish on her Captain Marvel cosplay because that is her favorite Avenger. There's a whole prologue with her and her fan fiction about how Captain Marvel saved the Earth, which is half true. We'll get into, you know, some of those things maybe later. Basically what happens is she sneaks out. She gets a family heirloom, these kind of uh, gauntlets, uh, or sorry, bangles is the actual term, um, from her grandmother who sent it. Her mother didn't want anything to do with it, so she took it. Needless to say, uh, they gave her powers. And it's basically kind of Green Lantern-esque hard-like constructs. She can, you know, form things that are like these kind of glittery, uh, stretchy kind of deals. It's not necessarily her powers in the comics. That was just, you know, stretching ability. This is much more different. And it essentially ends off on a note of, Oh my God, I have superpowers and I'm 16. What does my deeply religious, deeply concerned family think about this? Uh, Noah, over to you. I was, I was a huge fan of this. Please tell me you were at least someone on the same page. I love this series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, you and I are going to be coming at this from an angle of, I think, a lot of joy, a lot of appreciation, a lot of imagination that is present from the moment it begins. Out the gate, I did have some hesitation because I'm familiar with the fact that they are adjusting her powers and they're not defining her as an inhuman. So that I think that ruptures some fans' take on why this character is being explored at this time. Um, they're definitely going the angle of fitting their character, their MCU's comic book characters into their timeline instead of, you know, remaining 100% on what the, uh, source material, uh, you know, all the information and abilities associated with that. Um, do I think it's a blow? Honestly, yeah. Like, I think if you're exploring these characters, they should retain all of the things that make them unique from their creation. Um, that's not to say that I don't highly value what this series has to offer. Kamala is very much respectful of her parents, but she doesn't have the same kind of ideologies or the same kind of perspective on her own life and her, how she fits into the world. And I think that that's uh, universal. I think that's something that plenty of people can relate to. And this series, yeah, touches uh, or focuses on a 16 year old and it, it has the, um, 
incorporated scribbles and animations that aren't like bad background CGI. They're just like stickers. There's something that just float around in their environment. And it's real for Kamala, but for us as viewers, it's just as real because we just do get to experience her world from her perspective. And it's, and it's a beautiful world, right? She, the few facts that I am aware of from the comics are, um, she has the same powers as Mr. Fantastic. So she can uh, expand her body and become like kind of colossal, but also become really tiny. Um, and also she's a fan of fan fiction. Like she, uh, pictures her heroes and she creates storylines for them. And she, when I think about her, I think about, um, you know, childlike imagination on fire. Like you, it's just going and there's nothing stopping it. And that's why I really um, approach this with like a lot of heart. The show doesn't let you down. I think even if you came at it from a technical angle, you can't knock it because this show is doing, is doing camera tricks that you're not seeing in other Marvel Disney plus titles. Like it's, it's taking risks with how this show is presented to us as like kind of like a goofy teen series. The show to me is it's like, it's a gem. It is, it is a treasure. And, um, I, I'm not going to bash it on anything. I think that's excellent. And, um, I think everybody's watching it, whether you're um, a grown man or you're like, you're, you have so many kids or you have your own family or you're a kid or you're a child yourself and you want to watch the new Marvel series so much to gravitate toward here and, and really appreciate. Um, back to you, Brandon. Amon Volani. That's it. That is it, man. Oh, sorry. You wanted more. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, I just think she owns every second of the screen. Like, Yes, she's imperfect and obnoxious at certain points, but again, she's so likable and weird and nerdy. And just she is the perfect character for you to root for if you have ever been in that space. And I think most teenagers have at certain points of just being passionate about a thing and your family is doesn't really get it and no one around you really feels like they support you, but you love it. And there's just a thing in your brain that just forces you to abide by it. And like the show handles that perfectly. And Amon Volani is just so well cooked to the task. I just love her in this. And it's so funny that we have now a canon series that is willing to show us like how the heroes of the Avengers are regarded to everyday people. Like we get to go inside a convention. We go to this Avengers convention and it was so, it was so neat just to see the different products that would exist in a world where Iron Man is now regarded as a, a sacrificial hero along with Black Widow. The fact that you can buy, my friend pointed out to me, you're watching on the couch. He's like, you can buy an Asgard pride shirt. And I was like, that's right. Cause you got who up there? You have King Valkyrie. And obviously I'm a big fan of the MCU. So just to see what their world looks like, it, it's the reason why I think, um, uh, the Kate Bishop's character was pretty amazing in Hawkeye because she could provide us just that ground level perspective on what it's like to live in a world with superheroes. And Kamala Khan in Miss Marvel is the same way. I need to see them interact at some point. I genuinely desperately Absolutely. They say, I mean, um, word on the street is we're getting a young, Mar- a young Avengers movie. Yes. But there's also the question that people are bringing up, which is like, well, Kate and Yelena are like, 20 something and every other young avengers candidate is maybe 15 if like (laughs) so like there's a little bit of an age gap in there um yelena has definitely killed people she is a widow after all Uh, but as we mentioned earlier she'll probably be on thunderbolts um we went over in this podcast about you know moon knight and doctor strange and like all these stories that tried to be big interesting important stories 
this isn't that. And like from the very start, it recognizes that. I'm just like, this is a girl in her room who, you know, makes like paper mache fan fictions that has like 10 YouTube followers and then out of the blue gets, you know, superpowers. And even has that line of just like, you know, brown girls aren't the, from, brown girls from Jersey City are the one who saved the world. Well, in this case, she is and she has to now step up to that. It's a great premise for a series for a franchise that for so long has been focused on bigger and bigger and bigger. And this brings it down. And I love the fact that it's doing that. Snaps to you, Brandon. You you got an excellent way of putting things. Because well, I love this series and I want to talk about it. Hey, um, any of any Heartstopper fans out there, you may be uh, reminded of that kind of animation style of like it, mm-hmm. that series did the same thing of when if it was a fluttering moment, like and it looked really cute, you'd see butterflies on screen. Like there are parts of this experience that go beyond just what you see in the real world, and uh, Kamala's art is is wonderful like it's it's goofy it's wacky it's what you would expect from a teen imaginative mind and being an adult and watching it you're just kind of like oh it's so cool like i just i love all of it i love all the colors i love the art it's amazing tell me more but Um, but even like the side characters like her family are all super interesting i love I love and hate the moment with her dad where her dad comes in is like oh i'll go with you as like big hawk little hawk and i'm like oh my gosh that's super sweet but like you also get it from kamala's point of view of like no like this is my thing when you have when you write parent or when we see parents written in the way that they're entirely strict and they're overbearing, I think some people, or there's examples where they're just one note, you know, they're one dimensional. All they can do is really be against our main character here. That's absolutely dropped. Like, yes, they are overbearing and yes, they're super stuck in, in their beliefs and what they want for their daughter, but they're, they can still be so wacky. They can still be so funny to walk into their daughter's room with a full Hulk costume requesting her to join them. Like that's what stood out to me was I, I was impressed by how their, this, this show, I said it earlier, like this show has um, an aura of really like just joy and fun and delight that it's not um, shying away from. And I don't think, like you said, it doesn't have to get super intense for Kamala. Like we have the Marvels coming up and that's going to be major blockbusters, so much funding going into it, save your surprises for there. But here, just tell me who she is. Tell me who she is. And, um, I think she matters, but to some, maybe they need to know why she matters in the grant in the grander scheme of things. Um, she won't be involved with the X-Men or like the inhumans this time because of her or her new origin, but will they eventually disclose, you know, more information about her that matters to the greater MCU? Um, we'll have to wait and see. She does get her powers by the end of the episode though. They look really cool. Like I was concerned how they'd actually look and function, but like in the little bits we got, yeah, these are going to look just fine. I'm interested in understanding its its origin because if this is their new device, if this is their new plot device for because ah! <laughs> the popcorn button. Okay, if this is their new plot device, then what are they going to do to describe like where it came from, its previous owner? At first, I was like, oh my gosh, is this the whole Watchmen thing? Like her mom was the original Miss Marvel who held the. Yeah, I, that's one of my concerns is that, you know, the mom has the thing of just like, no, we don't talk about this. Like, you're, yeah, it's not special or anything like that. Well, okay, then she knows something. And I don't want, like, Kamala to come from, like, a legacy line that isn't Carol. Like, that's kind of the whole point, but whatever. Thank you all so much for tuning in and uh, listening to all of this. I'm sure we're going to go way too long for a runtime, but I'll try and chop it down as much as I can. Listen, 
While we've got you here, do us a quick favor. Like our pages on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and our RSS feed. You can get updates on when all of our shows are dropping. You can leave us a rating if you'd like to uh, do so. It actually does help us a lot in learning what you guys think of the show and helping just the algorithm recognize us as the show that we want to be. Uh, and you can also follow us on social media at Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. I want to, of course, thank my co-host, Mr. Noah Guzman. Noah, thank you so much for joining me on this jam-packed episode. Where can people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? So you can find me online at Twitter. I am at Noah's Plotting, uh, just like the plot device. Hey, 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 I'm an evil mastermind. Um, and also up ahead on our schedules, I will be covering the Black Phone. I cannot wait to talk uh, about the next horror movie. And apparently, like, Ethan Hawke is just diving into that character. So cannot wait. Uh, we talked about him before. He's employed. He's got a lot of work. So we'll see where he goes. Um I'm trying to get our TikTok account going and follow us at Plot Devices Podcast. Um, I will be starting to hopefully create some content there on this next break between episodes. But yeah, can't wait to see what TikTok has to offer for the Plot Device space. And you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at MovieKing45. Follow my work on ASU Odyssey as well. I should also have a couple of reviews uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks, so just uh, stay tuned for that. Go follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. And I almost forgot to mention this, our new mini-series, Directorial Debuts. Uh, we just we premiered our first couple episodes in the past couple of weeks as you're hearing this. Uh, go check those out. There's a couple more coming, and then we will have more information on what season one proper will be uh, in the next couple of weeks. So thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Brandon King. That is Noah Guzman. This has been Plot Devices. We'll catch you next time.